1: I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we're joined by the Labour MP and Committee on Standards Chair Chris Bryant to discuss the corruption scandal and how to clean up Parliament. As the Westminster corruption scandal continues to envelop more and more MPs, our guest today has been at the centre of attempts to clean up Parliament, often to the frustration of number 10. Labour MP Chris Bryant chairs the Common Standards Committee. It was his committee that last week's doomed attempt to protect Owen Paterson was seeking to undermine, but now ultimately may end up stronger. When he outlined the case against Paterson in the House, MPs listened in silence, many perhaps knowing the anger they were about to unleash. As
2: we say in the report, each of Mr Paterson's several instances of paid advocacy would merit a suspension of several days. But the fact that he has repeatedly failed to perceive his conflict of interest and used his privileged position as a Member of Parliament to secure benefits for two companies for whom he was a paid consultant is even more concerning. He has brought the House into disrepute. A Conservative colleague, whom I respect a great deal, said to me on Monday that justice should always be tempered by mercy. I agree. But justice also demands no special favours. These are the precedents that we considered. Patrick Mercer was suspended for six months. Um, Ian Paisley, sorry I've forgotten his constituency. Uh, For 30 days. Jonathan Saeed, 14 days. George Galloway, 18 days. When Geoffrey Robinson failed to provide proper responses to the Commissioner and Committee, he was suspended for a month. These are the precedents. This case is just as serious because it involved at least 14 instances. It was a pattern of behaviour and the Member has said time and again over the last week that he would do the same again tomorrow. So if the House were to vote down or water down the sanction or carry the amendment, it would be endorsing his action. We would be dismantling the rule on paid advocacy. (laughs) Which has been around in some shape or form since 1695. I'm afraid the public would think that we would be the Parliament that licensed cash for questions.
1: Chris Bryant, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Boris Johnson had to, felt he had to declare on the world stage that the UK is not remotely a corrupt country. You've compared his interve- intervention over the Owen Patterson case to something they do in Russia. Do you think the UK is a corrupt country?
3: I'm not sure that, well, I'm not sure the country is, but I think there's a danger, as Jonathan Evans, the head of the Committee on Standards in Public Life, said, of, of us lapsing into corruption. And I think some of the actions we've taken, rec- or the government has taken recently, have been corrupting. Uh, and, and, you see, I went to Mikhail Khodorkovsky's trial, show trial in Russia. I've met with Alexander uh, Navalny. I, I know quite a lot about Russia, and I've been warning about Russia for a long time. So I don't use that sort of comparison lightly. The truth is, it is is fundamental to the rule of law that you do not change the rules suddenly at the last minute during a disciplinary process to benefit a named individual. That is the definition of the polar opposite of justice. So that's what I was referring to.
0: On the sort of polar opposite of justice, um, you um, voted mostly with conservatives to prevent uh rob roberts the mp for in facing a uh, a recall precisely because of this idea that yeah this quite fundamental it was idea. going to be a retrospective
3: yeah. motion it would have applied it didn't apply at the time that he went through his
0: disciplinary process the disciplinary process had all
3: been gone through and um, for all i know the the, the independent expert panel Chester Stephen Irwin, might have come to a different conclusion as as to the sanction if the recall petition had been available to them. And so that's why I voted with the government against introducing retrospection on that. And I've maintained my position that I'm against retrospective legislation.
0: Yeah, I I was, I think lots of people were slightly surprised to see the Labour leadership calling for Rob Roberts to be kicked out, not because they agree with what he did, but for precisely that that reason. Um, what do you make of the fact that the Labour leadership has called for him to, to, to be kicked out?
3: Well, I understand why people want him to, to go. I mean, I, apart from anything else, the kind of humane uh, part of me wants to say to Rob Roberts, if he was sitting here now, I'd say to him, Rob, you will, if you just hang around in Parliament like a bad smell until the next general election just to take the money you know that is what will define your life if you were to leave now I think you would stand a much better chance of reshaping reforming your life otherwise well, it's a bit it's the same with Owen Patterson. you know sometimes you just have to be straight with people um, and um, says the biggest gay man in the room um, sometimes <laughs> you just be straight with people I'm not the biggest, but well, I am the only gay man in this room. Our, our
4: producer is making a face, actually, Chris.
3: Yeah. <laughs> He's not in this room.
4: <laughs> you mentioned the, the Owen Paterson case. I was wondering, can I ask you a bit about the, the human side of, of that um, that um, certainly has been talked about a little bit by conservative MPs when that motion was being voted on. A lot of them were expressing their concerns privately about his personal circumstances with the suicide of his wife, Rose. And some people were concerned about the the 30-day suspension and him having to face a recall position and so on. And were wondering if maybe... You know, maybe he should have been offered a a shorter suspension um, in the light of his personal circumstances. I know that you you touched on that briefly in the House of Commons, one of the debates. But I'm just wondering if you could explain the thinking behind sticking with the 30 day suspension.
3: So, first of all, I'm not a big fan of the word suicide actually, because it implies, you know, the term committing suicide implies the old understanding that it's a criminal offence and all of that. I I have known people who've taken their own lives. And when I was a priest in the Church of England, I, I led the funerals for quite a lot of people, who, in particular young people who'd taken their own lives. Um, so I know the, you know the mixed bag of emotions that are tied up in all of that. We did consider that in the committee. There was a view that we should have been going for a three month or a six month suspension which would have been consonant with what had been given to other people in previous similar situations, like Patrick Mercer, who was given a six-month suspension, or for that matter, Keith Vaz, different set of issues, but also six months. And it was partly because of all of those other considerations that we took it down to 30 days. But the biggest problem for us, I think, and emotionally still the biggest problem, is that Owen Paterson was adamant that he would do the same thing all over again. And and of course, justice, in in a sense, has to be blind as to the facts of a case. And the facts that we were talking about were obviously long before Rose Patterson took her own life. That's the kind of difficulty that I think any tribunal would face.
0: Mm. I sort of wanted to, to follow up on that. So obviously, you've, you've given two um, highly acclaimed speeches in the Commons about this, the First one in, in twenty the, years. In the, two in twenty <laughs> years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not a very good rate. Yeah. <laughs> two two that kind of came to each in the last week in the last fortnight. The first on the first vote, and the the second, yeah, the, the second uh, afterwards. And one of the things I I was very struck by in the second, year, you took a lot of interventions, including from Bill Cash, who'd been a big member of uh, Owen Paterson's supporters' club, as it were, in which you pointed out that actually, look, the thing about this case is the facts weren't disputed by anybody. It feels one of the issues we have, and one of the reasons why there's been slightly alarming changes that have, you know, made Parliament seem and act in a more corrupt way, is this kind of this strangeness of kind of agreeing the facts but not sort of seeming to understand the need for sort of sanction. Uh, as someone who's, you know, chair of this committee, then has been regularly criticised by other MPs precisely for that reason. Um, how do you think that sort of kind of cognitive gap can be bridged?
3: I think Owen was in denial. Probably still is in denial. And consequently, he led all his friends rather up the garden path. And quite a few of them have said so to me since, you know, because he was adamant that they couldn't even table an amendment which cuts the suspension from 30 days to nine days, because that would imply that he was guilty. And he refused to accept that he was guilty. And he said he would do it all over again. And, you know, when the vote happened, which he he claimed that it all vindicated him and all that kind of stuff. I mean, all of that allied with an extraordinary campaign of vilification of the commissioner, which had all sorts of horrible tinges to it. Like, you know, oh my God, she didn't go to Oxbridge. Um, Oh, you know, I mean, it was just all a great deal of snobbery and all sorts of vile things tied up in one. And and it felt like a full-on barrage. There's one thing, incidentally, that this will seem a minor issue but the reports from the standards committee it actually says in the rules that they will normally be carried without any amendment or change uh, and without a vote and there's only been there was a vote in 1947 which ended up um, the Labour party was suspending a or Herbert Morrison moved that Gary Alligan be be suspended from the house for six months and then Winston Churchill tabled an amendment which doubled that in fact suspended him uh, expelled him from parliament um, so the only time that it's been changed is to is to make it a tougher, never going in the other direction. Um, but the, the slight odd thing is that the committee proposes, but it has to wait for the government to table the motion and, and then the government minister speaks to the debate. And Jacob Brees-Mogg took 45 minutes out of the 90 minutes allocated by the government to the debate, and, which meant that none of Owen Paterson's friends, other than Jacob, I guess, got got to speak in the debate at all. And I thought that was a mistake so what and also the government left a week which was filled the vacuum was filled before we ended up with the debate so i would much prefer a situation where um, motions from the standards committee automatically come to the house decided by the speaker not by the government and they're moved by the, the by the chair of the committee not by anybody else
1: you spoke about sort of conservative MPs expressing their concerns to you. You gave um, a great quote in your I newspaper interview where you said it was the knob. Someone told you the knobs of the party told the oiks what to do and the knobs don't have the best political antennae. I wondered if without betraying confidences, you could tell us a bit about what you're hearing from your conservative colleagues at the moment now that so many other MPs are being sort of dragged into this story that's becoming wider.
3: Incidentally, the first write up of that um, knobs versus oiks uh, misunderstood the word knobs. Oh. Um, <laughs> an extraneous K <laughs> appeared at the beginning of the words. Oh dear! Um, I don't think that was the point that was being made. <laughs> Lots of Tories are absolutely furious. I mean, you don't even—I don't even have to breach confidence because Philip Davis, I think, has published this. Um, he said, you know, to, to the Whips, don't ever tell me to vote for anything ever again, because um, it's not only that you, you persuaded me to vote for something which I was very uncomfortable about. But more importantly then the next day you abandon that position so everybody's left cast high uh, you know on a on a on the sandbank with no means of escape um, and i think that that's a very strong feeling amongst a lot of tory mps especially new intake interestingly many of whom i, I think previously thought that they owed their career to boris johnson um, and now some of them think that they might owe their demise to boris johnson
1: And I wonder how this moment feels to you, because you were elected in 2001. So you've had years of experience in the Commons.
3: 1873 it was.
1: You've had years of experience in the Commons pre and post the expenses scandal. So do do you feel that the current revelations feel similar to the precursor of the expenses scandal to you? Like, could this be one of those moments where lasting changes come in as well afterwards?
3: It actually feels more like um, the run up to 1997. I wasn't in the house at the time, but I was around in politics. I was a local councillor in in Hackney and it feels like it for for several reasons. One, because every, well, the word sleaze became, you know, very current. It's not a word I like actually, because I don't think it's very nuanced. And, uh, you know, in those days, being gay was sleazy. Um, And I'm glad to say that's not quite how we view things today. So I think it's a little bit. Uh, it, it but, but it is nonetheless like that because every journalist i know is searching out sleaze stories that's that's the currency for and i think that that will go on for months and months and months
4: Chris, I'm just wondering, we're having now off the back of this Owen Patterson thing, a much bigger conversation, as you say, about sleaze, about MPs' salaries, and about second jobs, which are, you know, to what what extent certain ones are appropriate or not, and how far that should go. Um, What's your view on that, given that you're looking into the MPs' code of conduct at the moment?
3: So the Standards Committee is looking at the Code of Conduct and what's in it and what, I mean, all the content of it and, and its operation. We, we haven't really focused much on the on the issue of second jobs. So there is one recommendation that has come forward to us fairly well repeatedly since 2018 from the Committee on Standards in Public Life, which is you shouldn't be able to have a job where effectively uh, where you're a consultant and you're effectively a sort of paid advisor on how to get your way around politics. That just seems, uh, that's a conflict of interest. That's the key issue for me. It's where there's a conflict of interest is the matter. And, um, you know, I, I mean, i it's great having the letters MP after your name. In, in, in Well, there's lots of places where it isn't, right? But I mean, it, it's, it, you know, when you write, I had a case in my constituency. Mr. Creamy Ice Cream is based in the Ronda, And Mr. Creamy Ice Cream had been operating for years and years and years. Kerry Foods decided that they were going to start a Mr. Creamy Ice Cream. And uh, Kerry Foods, being a massive operation, decided to sue Mr. Creamy because Mr. Creamy hasn't hadn't licensed the name. And I thought, well, and, and the company was frightened of closing. So I rang up. Um, the chairman of Kerry Foods in Ireland, this massive corporation, the chairman took my call straight out because I had the letters MP after my name. And I said, look, you probably don't even know that you're suing Kerry Foods. He said, no, uh, you're suing Mr. Green. He said, no, I'm not. I said, listen, they're thinking of changing their name to Sub Zero. If they just do that, why don't we get along like that? He said, brilliant idea. Everybody saved money. And it was only, he only took the call because I had those letters MP. So it's not using those letters MP inappropriately is the key issue. Now, being a GP, in some situations being a lawyer or for that matter, a dentist or a vet uh, or writing books or writing articles or doing a bit of broadcasting, all of that, it seems to me, there's no conflict of interest. You still want to know that somebody's got that work, but there's no conflict of interest. So there is an area where we could probably tighten up, which is that area where there's a conflict of interest.
1: If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to the New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12.
0: So on the, the sort of issue of, of lawyers, um, you know this having quite literally written the book on 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 Parliament and its history. In times past, many, many lawyers did what Geoffrey Cox is now, you know, in the spotlight for doing, which is having a very extensive legal career. Um, the fact that, you know, I mean, I personally wouldn't want my MP to be working quite that hard as a lawyer, but the fact that that has kind of declined is one of the reasons why uh, the Conservatives in particular have struggled to recruit top quality people to be law officers and why Lord Chancellor, Secretary of State for Justice has become a bit of a problem position for them. There are obviously huge advantages to, to modernising the Commons in lots of ways. But do you think then something is lost in the quality of, and, and the variety of people in the House of Commons now that it has become a full time job for most MPs?
3: Well, look, the truth is, I mean, I've in the last two years in particular, my casework has quadrupled. It's been much more intense than in all of my time as an MP. You know, that's put enormous pressures on MPs. You, know, you feel you have to answer emails, even if they come in at 1130 on a Saturday night when you've only just finished watching the, you know, the catch-up of Strictly. Um, so, because I'm not watching the whole thing all the way through, there's far too much padding. <laughs> I, and I'm not meaning in the, in the costumes. I
1: mean, padding so. um,
3: But not, I'm not, anyway. Um, I've got myself <laughs> a now my thinking about padding. It's is a terrible mistake. I'm not thinking about Adam Peaty at all. Um, uh, but the point I'm making is about lawyers. Yes, about lawyers. So. Um, I think it is a full-time job now. It's really tough. You, you, It's 60 hours a week. Now, if you want to spend another 20 hours a week doing something else, I'm relaxed about that as long as they're not a conflict of interest. And um, There are two other interesting traditions. In the past, if you asked another member of the House to represent you legally, that was the convention that they did so for free. So, I mean, that will be an interesting one to implement again today. Um, and And the other thing is, of course, we've had parliaments where where you were not allowed to come if you were a lawyer. I think, I can't remember whether it's 1342 or 1432, I've got got the date wrong, but it was known as the unlearned parliament because the King said no lawyers at all because they're just very irritating.
1: Yeah, again, talking of lawyers, I mean, you wrote in The Guardian that in the eyes of the public, this may have damaged the whole of parliament, not just the Tories who voted for the nonsensical. So in your view, how should Labour be approaching this scandal and avoid... Being tarred with the same brush because obviously Keir Starmer has billed for hours as a barrister as well by being while being an MP. Uh,
3: look, I mean, in my capacity as chair of the committee on standards, I care about the reputation of the whole house. As a Labour person, I care about the reputation of the house because it's the only way that you can achieve change is through. De- and I believe in democracy as a social democrat. I, I want I want parliamentary democracy to work. So, I hate the idea that there will be no checks and balances on government. um I worry that over the last few years, lots of those have you know gone up in smoke, and I sometimes worry that the government is seeking to burn more of those um and i I worry that you know constituents will just go, "Well, you're all as bad as each other. We might as well not bother voting." And then we've only had universal suffrage for a hundred years. Um, well, not, not even if you're including you know, um, women at uh, the same age as men. So I think w- this is a precious thing that we need to protect.
1: So how far do you think Labour should sort of dig in on, on making political hay out of the scandal then to avoid what you've just sort of laid out as everyone sort of being seen as in it for themselves?
3: Well, in a way, that's not, not a question for me because that's up to the Labour Party. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I can be as partisan as I want uh, as any uh, anybody else on, on other issues, but I'm not going to be on this because I want anybody who ever appears before our committee to feel that they've had a fair hearing, which incidentally, I'm absolutely convinced that Owen Paterson had um and um i but you know i i think there are things that a labour government or a La- the labour party in the run up to the next election must say so i fully support the the policy of saying that we wouldn't have people able to be employed as consultants um consultant lobbyists as it were as mps i'd like us to say that we will have far greater respect for parliamentary conventions and some of those you might put into statute I'd like to see the ministerial code put into statute I'd like to see a Labour a future prime minister commit to do to that and I'd like to see us believe in the checks and balances which have all been dismantled so I think there's a good programme for a potential Labour government to put in place.
0: So I have a, a very nerdy final question you obviously did these two speeches. It's not quite... in
3: your nature to ask <laughs> nerdy questions.
0: Yeah, it's, it will be a shock to our <laughs> listeners, I'm sure. But um, uh, you had two speeches. One in which you took a lot of interventions, which for listeners who aren't quite is where people stand up and one in which you um, you didn't. Both of which you had a lot of quite technical information that you needed to get across. In the second, of course, you had the exact wording of the emotion you wanted to deliver. When you sit and write a speech and you know that you may be taking interventions, how do you how do you how is preparing for the two different from each other and you know and what made you decide to to do them in quite different ways yeah that first one without any and the first one with the second one with with quite a few well well, as you may know I
3: don't normally write a speech I normally um, prepare for a speech you know I've got the lines of uh, what I want to say the broad kind of area and I and I've read into the subject and I I think I know what I'm talking about Um, and that's much more flexible but I was aware in relation to the Owen Paterson case, that I had to be very, sort of sh- straight and down the line, and explain to people, some of whom might not have read the, r- the original report, and some of whom would simply not understand what was in the tabled amendment from Andrea Ledson and the government. Um, I just had to lay all of that out as clearly as I possibly could, and in as tightly linguistically as tightly as possible. And and I, I I was you know I was really pleased, obviously, that the, the House listened to me with with quite a degree of attention, I think. And, and I know that some Conservatives changed their vote because of it. And my aim was to persuade people. Sometimes you make a speech where you know you're not gonna persuade anybody, but you're gonna get it off your chest anyway. <laughs> um, but sometimes you are only in there to, to persuade. And sometimes you plead, sometimes you just try to marshal your argument as well as you can, You know, different tones of voice. I just thought that in this case, it was i i felt like i was i don't know in front of a judge and and the and the house was the judge and so i had to be as unflorid as straight as possible unflamboyant as possible which reminds me instantly that when i was very first elected the first bbc journalist to ask to congratulate congratulate me said aren't you a bit too um, flamboyant for the ronda <laughs> And I said, do you mean gay? You mean gay, basically, don't you? You just mean gay.
4: What did you so say?
3: That. I said, well, I'm only slightly gay. Well, actually, I'm completely gay, but... Um, I was breaking it to you, so... <laughs>
1: Well, Chris Bryant, thank you so much for your time and what's been an incredibly busy time for you and your committee. And we're looking forward to reading your report on potential changes to the standard system. That's coming out before Christmas, is that right?
3: It might even be an early Christmas. It might be out before Advent.
1: You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush and Alva Ray. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe.